Happy Monday. This is Cordelia on the We Heal Together podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Nicole LaPera. You may know her from her Instagram, The Holistic Psychologist, or you may know her from her new book, How to Do the Work. It is a New York Times bestseller, and as of the day that I'm recording this, it is number six of all the books on Amazon. So excited. That's amazing and incredible. Just amazing. So I'm, I can't wait for you guys to hear today's conversation. For a little bit more in-depth background, for those of you who are unfamiliar with her, Dr. Nicola Perra was trained in clinical psychology at Cornell University and the New School for Social Research. She also studied at the Philadelphia School of Psychoanalysis. As a clinical psychologist in private practice, Dr. LaPere often found herself frustrated by the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. Wanting more for her patients and for herself, she began a journey to develop a united philosophy of mental, physical, and spiritual health that equips people with the tools necessary to heal themselves. She's the creator of the self-healers movement where people from all around the world are joining together in community to take healing into their own hands. In her first book that I mentioned, How to Do the Work, that was just released in March 2021. I have all of her info. I have the link to her book. I have the link to her website and her free future self journaling. That is all in the show notes. I have the link to her Instagram. If you're not following her, check out her page. I like the stuff that she posts. She posts a lot of really insightful things and I feel like I learned from her. I also have all my info in the show notes as well. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoy today's episode. New episodes drop every single Monday. Let's get healing, y'all. Yay, I'm so excited to have you on here and to chat with you. Welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Of course, thank you so much for having me, Cordelia. And before we dive into your incredible book, I wanted to pause for all the listeners out there who might not be familiar with you. So can you just give kind of a brief overview of what you do, the work you do, and kind of your mission. Absolutely. Um, So I am a clinical psychologist by training. Um, On the human side of things, I am a human who definitely has had an intimate relationship with all things anxiety for as long as I can remember. And I think like many of us who go into the profession, um, for me, it was really a deep-rooted curiosity or interest in people um, that sent me on the pathway of becoming a clinical psychologist. So I went to a lot of schooling, Um, learned a lot of different ways um, to help people understand themselves and to create change in their lives. Flash forward um, several years into my private practice. I was living in Philadelphia at the time, and I actually started to feel really, really disempowered with the work that I was doing and also the life that I had been living up until that point. Um, I'd struggled myself to create change, uh, been in therapy myself on both sides of the couch, as I like to put it. Um, And I continued to watch myself and many of my clients struggle with what I call stuckness, the inability to create change. And in seeking to understand why, I really explored and uncovered a whole world of new information, of new science. And I began to make sense of it and began to work as I now do holistically, really honoring the interconnectedness of our being, the mind, body, and soul that each of us are inhabiting as part of this human experience. And beginning to, again, like I said, understand why change is universally difficult for us humans. 
um, and began to share my work, of course, on social media, many of you knowing my account now as the holistic psychologist. But for me, it was a journey really informed by my own lack of healing in my life and my own disempowerment around my work with my clients that inspired this holistic journey that I'm now on. I love that. And I love hearing how you went through the academia side. And of course, that's still, and even in your book, that comes through where, you know, you cite to a lot of, a lot of well-known things um, in that regard. But I just find your journey and hearing you talk about it really incredible. I'm sure you've come across so many people. When I think in my mind of people who pursue PhDs and MDs and JDs and all these different degrees, sometimes it's really hard to, you know, after you go through that, there's almost like a hazing to it where you go through all of it and you feel like I'm supposed to be this type of person and I got this degree and this is how it should be. And so I give you so much kudos for, you know, not falling into that trap and allowing yourself to trusting yourself, you know, when, um, when you did run into that with your clients in professional, when you're out in private practice. I appreciate you saying that Cordelia, because it, it did in a lot of ways, it was incredibly challenging. Um, so much of myself, um, the image I held of myself as a clinician, though also as a human, was wrapped up in that older model. Um, this idea, right, that wellness isn't actually possible for some of us, um, those of us that have, you know, genetic uh, chips, if you will, to get certain medical or psychological illnesses that I knew I had in my family, a lot of us don't feel like um, wellness is even possible. So for me, um, there was a shedding of a lot of belief systems, a lot of which were formed not only in my family and my immediate environments, though through the schooling system. And we do as clinicians, I think, wear all of these identities um, as helper, as all-knower, as guru in the room. And I actually think that there's some um, negative uh, out outputs of, of that. And you know, it is challenging. It was like a shedding in a lot of ways of, of aspects of myself um, that I was embodying in my own personal journey. So there was a lot of unlearning. I talk about peeling the onion back. Um, <laughs> and that really was part of, of the journey. The initial part of the journey for me was challenging a lot of those older beliefs. Absolutely. And I, can you speak at all on when you initially kind of started to pivot I'm just curious how not only maybe friends and family received you kind of pivoting from more of the traditional, what people think of as, you know, therapists, like in an office, that kind of thing. So not only friends and family, but also any colleagues, you know, that you went to school with and you're keeping in touch with or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it's interesting because my my feedback from my profession um, was was part of my journey while I was in school. And what I mean when I say that is I was always kind of being urged to look a little different in the attire I wore or to present a little different in the room, to be the blank slate um, that I think, you know, is, is kind of paramount in the field. And for, for very intuitive space, Cordelia, none of that really felt right to me. I felt like I right. was a human first, like connecting with the people <laughs> that I was working with was totally appropriate. And that who cares right. what I wear? If someone doesn't like my tattoos that are visible or the fact that, you know, I look a little casual a lot of the time, because that's how I'm comfortable, you know, if, if right. that's not a good fit for this person, then I always kind of understood it as not being a good fit. Maybe I'm not the clinician for them. So I share that because right. I did hear a lot of feedback, a lot of the shaping in the field of being this type of person very well intentionally. I understand some of the reasoning behind it, but I always right. kind of felt like I was on the outskirts. Like I was a little bit over here and kind of <laughs> being naughty for being over here. Um, and so of course that kind of came to the surface a bit more as I began to challenge some of the older ways of working. And to speak to your point, yes, the traditional field has a lot of value. Um, the gold right. standard model, CBT, which is kind of paramount in the field, um, does have benefit. Our thoughts are incredibly powerful. I have I devote a whole chapter in the book to the power of belief yeah. beginning in thought, right? However, again, I don't think it encompasses the, the totality of the human experience. So as I began to, sh to shift my own life personally, as a lot of us do, 
right. the environment around us becomes challenged. Relationships start to experience us a little differently and it, it's uncomfortable <laughs> at first. And that of course was within the field too, as I began to speak about the importance of the body, about nervous system regulation, about nutrition and the fact that our gut plays an incredibly important role in our mental wellness. Yes, there were some people in the field who felt challenged um, by these new ideas. However, and this was the most, I think, validating aspect of my journey, there were so many more who had come to these conclusions on their own. There were right. so many more, right, who were updating their practices in different nooks and crannies of the world and different countries <laughs> even, beginning to inform the work that they were doing, the healing that they were doing much more holistically. So I, like everyone else, we, some of us need that external validation, need other people saying, you know what, you're not crazy, Nicole. This is, yeah. there's value in this. And there was so many more clinicians of, of peers of mine um, right there from the jump that were shaking their head emphatically. And I mean, just the growing of the account itself for me was that universal yeah. nodding um, of all of us saying, yes, this is work that is resonating because no matter where you are across the planet, we're all coming to these awarenesses. So there has to be some truth in it. Absolutely. And I mean, your book, it's so incredible. The writing, it I feel like it's just so easy to connect with. And it is such an intellectual book, but also emotional book as I read it. And speaking to the power of, you know, your account, I think your book is also just, it, it is connecting with so many people before we recorded today. I checked and it's number six on Amazon of all the books. I know it's on, it's been on the New York times bestseller list. How does that feel? It just, I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it, it is in many ways very difficult to imagine. Um, and if I'm honest, I haven't really given myself the full space uh, to settle into right. how it feels for me. Um, because something you'll read about in the book, I talk a lot about the power of our subconscious, all of these conditioned ways yeah. that we find ourselves operating that maybe aren't fully satisfying or fulfilling. So for me, um, when I'm busy, when I have stuff to do, I very much shift into one of the archetypes that I mentioned in the book. Um, the one that I resonate the most with is the overachiever the go, the do, mm -hmm. the, oh, I have a million appearances to make now because I have a book out. I'm busy, 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 going, going, going. And very true right. to my old self form, I have that very strong uh, pull to keep myself busy, to not give myself a break, to settle into how I feel. So I'll just use that as a teaching moment right now um, that I can't honestly answer you fully how I feel yeah. just yet because I'm now integrating boundaries back into my life, giving myself the time <laughs> away from constant work to be able to check in with how I feel. So ask me again, maybe in the next six yeah. weeks and I'll have a little more of how I feel. I know overwhelmed, I could go ahead and throw that word out there um, yeah. in all the directions. Oftentimes we're not even just overwhelmed with bad, stressful things that I think a lot of times we associate that word with. Life in joy, right, can be overwhelming. Right. So I think overwhelm is about the only word that I can apply right now. Um, <laughs> though again, like I share, a lot of this too is a function of my old conditioning. For me, it's hard for me to create the space to tend to my feelings. I am the person who shifts into doing mode. Um, and here's another prime example of I'm living that pull right now. And I'm reminding yeah. myself to give myself the space so that when people like yourself ask me how I feel, <laughs> I can have an awareness of how I feel. <laughs> no. Um, and I identify with that so much. When I was reading your book, that's, I was like, yep, this overachiever <laughs> is absolutely absolutely me so I recognize that I can't like I was saying the book is very to me it's very intellectual it's very well well written but I also loved how you like wove personal stories and it felt very personal and emotional to read I'm curious what the process was like writing it even from an emotional kind of standpoint it, it was, I mean, using the word process, I think that really does embody a lot of what the experience was like for me. Um, so thinking about the book in terms of the concepts of it, that was, I think, the easy part. Um, having mm -hmm. to, or not having to, choosing to, a big part of the beginnings of the book were, was me traveling down memory lane, if you will. Uh, the very limited yeah. memories I do have about my childhood, though when considering 
you know, what relationships were like for me early in life at different life stages, even that process of calling it to mind so that I could incorporate my narrative, my story into the book as I do, was emotional. Um, as those of us who have ever traveled down any version of memory lane, either self-induced <laughs> or uh, you know externally induced, that thing that reminds me of that time and that place, knows that it, it can embody a lot of emotion. So for me, it was from the beginning, retelling my story, considering my story, um, relaying my narrative, and then I was met with all of those emotions on each and every edit point, getting the book back. You know, you would think, right. oh, I should be used to this wave <laughs> of emotion right now, and it wasn't. It was as if each and every time I was right back um, on that journey, on my own journey, and on many other people. I share a lot of old clients that I've worked with, members of the self-healers community, um, and their own journeys in there. So just as emotional to reread the book, even after having written it and edited it as many times as I had, um, for my own right. participation in creating it. And then of course there's all of the vulnerability upon knowing it's going to be released into the world and then releasing it into the world, so. Absolutely, and I'm even thinking how that has to be a lot, a lot to process from, you know, I'm thinking from like an editorial standpoint, you know, there might be, there might've been conversations that somebody was just, trying to talk to you and give you some comments about like the editing aspects and it's really hard I I would assume to be able to shift your brain into like okay I'm not reprocessing all of this I'm just thinking about it from like an editing or grammar standpoint and just how many times you must have had to go through that in a book writing yeah. process yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of that too and there's also the shift of you know, trying to write it in a way, and I'm very touched that you, you know, were talking about the book being intellectual, though understandable, because that's always yeah. been my intention with this work, I think, or I know a lot, most of the concepts that I speak about have been spoken about, have been maybe even written about quite extensively. However, what I've continued to hear um, from many people is these things just feel like concepts, or they're elusive, or I don't really know right. how to apply this stuff um, into my day-to-day. -day. So for me, um, using language that is universally understandable because I am aware that the self-healer community is quite international. So for a lot of us, English right. isn't the first language. So being sensitive to the listeners, trying to word things, not how my brain makes sense with them, because I do have a very intellectualized brain. I can dive right. down a rabbit hole of all of the hard to understand <laughs> words and have my little dictionary and get a little you know, stimulation from that. However, that's right. my brain. And I understand that not everyone's brains are stimulated positively in that, in that manner. So right. for me, it was the process of tending to the listener and trying to make it as understandable for all listeners, of course, as within reason of our ability to even do that as possible. So that was kind of the rigorous part of it because we all have that tendency, right? We read words yeah. through what satisfies our mental workings, though understanding that not everyone's mind works like that. We're all different learners even. So for some of us, even having a book, right, visually, that could be very positive right. for us visual learners. And for us auditory learners, the book isn't gonna work, right? They go to the audio book. Yeah. So it's just interesting to consider presenting information in a way that's understandable yeah. and I'm very happy to hear that it's, it's translating to you at least. It is. It I th I think it's wonderful and I thought it would be great just to kind of break down because I do I agree that you did such a good job of breaking down these concepts where a lot of times people hear these words but even if you think you know what it means if somebody asked you like what does that actually mean I think that's when you realize like, okay, I don't, I don't have a good grasp on the concepts. So I thought, you know, while you're on the show, it would be great to have you kind of just lay out a few of these concepts. So first, I suspect that there's at least some listeners out there that are going to be like, what is holistic psychology? What are they talking about? <laughs> so I would love for you just to kind of Give us a little overview. What is that? I appreciate starting at, at the beginning because yeah. the word holistic, or I know I've, I've heard a lot of different uses of it and it's become a little Absolutely. bit of a buzzword um, <laughs> in a lot of ways, this concept of holistic, though maybe some of us haven't heard that word, don't know what we mean or unsure of what conversation you and I are having. So to me, um, what holistic means uh, is honoring the interconnectedness of our being. Again, acknowledging that as far as I see it, we have a physical body, 
we have an energetic or emotional body. That's the energies, the hormones that are contained in our emotional, very complicated emotional world that we experience here as humans. And I also believe that there's another kind of indescribable essence, if you will. Um, some of us might even apply a more spirit or spiritually laden word like soul yeah. to it. Um, though I think universally, most of us can begin to agree whether or not we want to apply a label or not, that there is something that makes us each the uniqueness that is us, that there are no two exact Nicoles in this world and there are no two exact Cordelia's in this world, right? So there's an essence, right. a -ness, um, that is unique to each of us. So I call that the spiritual or the soul. So I believe in a mind, a body, and a soul, an integrated experience of being. So that's what holistic means to me is understanding that we do have those interconnected selves um, that are in communication with each other and that a lot of the reason we're to apply that word I've been using earlier stuck is because right. of balances in any or in all of these ways of being or of these selves. So understanding holistic is two part, right? Understanding the interconnectedness of being mind, body and soul and understanding the root cause that for many of us, there is that deeper imbalance that are causing the symptoms or the stuckness that so many of us are cycling through, despite oftentimes knowing better, having increasing amounts right. of insight how these things don't work, yet we still can't create change. So that's what holistic means to me, understanding again, the driving force so that we can yeah. begin to resolve our symptoms at the deeper level and not just put the band-aids over it as so many of us, myself included, have been doing for so long. Right. And I, I love that. I love how you break it down into like intertwining those three parts because, and I think it's important and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but in psychology, I only have a bachelor's in psychology, so I didn't go on to get a PhD. I did get a JD and went a different route, but my experience with psychology was it wasn't holistic at the bachelor's level. You know, it was definitely the focus was on the mind. And sure, there was like some, maybe some physical things thrown in, but I don't remember anything being, you know, from a holistic standpoint as you're describing it. Yeah, psychology traditionally um, is, is rooted in what we call mind body dualism. Essentially the mind is separate from the body. So I, you know, right. becoming the clinical psychologist was the doctor of the mind. You go to me right. for talk therapy <laughs> to tinker with thoughts to help the person to feel better. Um, and of right. course, if there's an ailment in the body, you go to the medical doctor. Again, there was never a conversation of how does the body affect mental wellness and how does right. mental wellness or lack thereof affect the body and vice versa. Right. So yeah. Again, it's very separate. It's like the silo approach. Um, yeah. Surprisingly, even though psyche <laughs> does mean soul, um, the soul, that spiritual component, right. that essence, that uniqueness has been largely thrown out for this approach of universal, one size fits all yeah. modeling where we're fitting in these categories um, that aren't so unique anymore. So we've actually kind of gone the opposite direction and almost right. remove the uniqueness, the individual in service of the big catch-all groups. Yeah. I think in, as you were speaking, it really just kind of clicked with me on a personal level, the distinction throughout my life. I've, and I've always been very open about, I've gone to, you know, therapy and then I've gone and seen psychiatrists as well for depression and it's so interesting when you were talking, I was thinking of both of those experiences, like going to the therapist was very focused on talking. Whereas when I went to the psychiatrist, that those are typically like very brief sessions and very focused on just like checking off the DSM criteria, possibly tweaking, you know, medic, is this antidepressant working for you? Let's try this. And very different if it, I bring it up just to say it's a good illustration of mm -hmm. like I was being treated for the same kind of Thing. Um, mental <laughs> health issue. Yeah. Like depression. But in that one mental health provider, I'm there just to, mm -hmm. you know, talk and do whatever psychological, you know, work needed to be done. And then at the psychiatrist, it's more just like a check-in of what symptoms are you experiencing and does it fit that criteria? So just really interesting. And I love that you 
the holistic approach kind of intertwines that all. So that kind of brings me to another question. I'm sure a lot of people, I love the title that you picked for the book because I'm like one of those people that's, I love that phrase, just the work. But I have a feeling maybe some people out there might be like, what is the work? What are they talking about? So again, what is the work? Can you break that down for anybody out there that wants to know? The concept of the work uh, and the reason why the book is titled How to Do the Work um, is, is really emblematic of the reality that I've come to believe, which is that to create change, we have to create new choices or new actions, right? We have to begin to do something differently. Um, those of us who have maybe tried the power of thought to think a new thought and yeah. change my world around it probably have come up with lack of success in doing that. Um, because yeah. for so many of us, we're living in a dysregulated body, right? We actually have to do work to feel differently by making new choices, by embodying a new mental or emotional state, by doing something different. So back to those clients that I was discussing in the beginning, um, that right. week after week, we're continuing to be stuck right? The issue was they had increasing amounts of insight. And I think a lot of us who are in that interim, unable to use the insight, unable to do better, if you will, as we all like to say, right? With this insight, right. we can feel incredibly frustrated, disempowered. And some of us even begin to wonder if we're broken. Is there some reason why I can't create change um, in this way? And again, a large reason why we can't change in, in this way is because we can't just think our body into a new experience. So doing the work yeah. um, is is really offering the, the reality that our autopilot, what I keep referencing, this space that most of us are repeating, yeah. these habits and patterns that were created at a time, usually very early in life, where our resources were different, where our relationships look different, where for many of us, our environments look different. We are cycling from our autopilot. We are living within those habits and patterns. So to begin to create a life that looks different, we actually be, have to begin to make new choices, right? So insight alone right. isn't going to be that new thing in that next moment, right? Insight alone isn't gonna compel me into action. I actually have to show up and create a new action. So when I'm speaking about doing the work or the practice of change, the embodiment of change, we're really talking about that bridge. How do I take this okay. concept into a new action so that I can begin to make new choices and create transformation? Because that's where change comes from when I make new choices, when I show up differently. And that's the bridge. That's why it's called the work, because it does mean showing up and making that new choice despite the discomfort of doing the unfamiliar. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And when you said autopilot, it reminded me of in your book, it. That was one of my favorite parts when you talked about kind of laying it all out there about what autopilot is, our conditioning. And it really spoke to me when you talked about how our your mind really actually prefers that autopilot mode. And it can be really hard to get out of it, right? If you could kind of expand on that a little bit, I would love it. I appreciate you asking because, like I said, a lot of us entertain all of these wildly inaccurate narratives when we find <laughs> ourselves unable to create change. Like yeah. I said, we do begin to feel like, okay, maybe it's because I'm broken. Maybe it's because I'm not worthy of yeah. change. Oh, it must be because genetically I cannot, you know, create change or I can't diminish this anxiety that I've experienced my whole life. Why, why would I be able to? Um, you know, and it's, an inc it's incredibly difficult to find ourselves in that stuck place, especially, like I said, with increasing amount of insight. The reason why we can't create change is because change or the unfamiliar, the thing that I can't predict, is registered as threatening to our subconscious. Our subconscious's sole drive is very evolutionarily based and it's to keep us safe. And now this is what we wanna understand in this moment. According to our subconscious, safety is found in the familiar, period, the end. Mm -hmm. Because I know probably a lot of listeners are like, well, safe. These, these relationship right. cycles or right, these self-harming you know, patterns that I, that my coping tools that I've relied upon actually are not keeping me safe in the least. So just to be clear, safety, according to our subconscious, is found in the familiar, in the path I've been down, right? in the emotion I know I can avoid right. if I do this thing time and time again. So that's why change is hard. So anyone who's tried to create change and hasn't been able to even make the first new choice or to maintain that first new choice because right. some of us can we can white knuckle right our way through yeah. three weeks of maybe <laughs> a new behavior and then before we know it by week five we're right back 
in that pattern. So if you are that person, you're human, right? You, you, your subconscious doesn't want you to venture out into the possibly threatening territory of that unknown. So what it does is it creates a resistance. Some of us hear it in our thoughts, the million reasons why this plan won't work this time, why we're not worthy of doing right. this, or maybe just all the other things I should be doing with my time. If I do have responsibilities around me in the world, right? I convince myself out of it via thought, thought-based resistance, or yeah. some of us, it drops into our bodies. We begin to just feel a new way, feel uncomfortable. I'm just different in my skin and I just don't, it's not how I usually feel. And before yeah. I know it, if I pay too much attention to the very natural resistance that comes with doing something new, if I take that to mean I'm going in the wrong direction, or this is my body telling me I can't take this new experience, before I know it, I am right back in those familiar ruts. I am living in those patterns that aren't serving me. So I speak about this to acknowledge that change isn't easy for any of us. When we begin to venture into that unfamiliar territory, there will be resistance, all of the reasons why not to, that might even make us feel uncomfortable, yet that, that's how we create change. We show up right. despite that resistance. We show ourselves that we can embody a new way of being. We can make new choices to allow ourselves to be different in the world. And that's how we actually begin to walk toward a future that's different from that past that so many of us have been living on repeat. That's so beautifully said. When I read that part, I remember thinking autopilot to me always felt like the stories that other people had told me. And the moment that I kind of stopped living in autopilot was that moment that I asked myself, why? Like, why do I think I, or why do I think I'm this? Or why do I, why am I doing that? And so I really loved your explanation on the show and in your book on autopilot. It really spoke to me. You're bringing up a really important, uh, pivotal, powerful aspect of this, which is sometimes it hasn't been our stories. It never was. Yeah, right. it is so impactful. It does become part of who we are. Um, and that's, of course, the journey of healing, becoming conscious to all of those old stories that no longer serve us and creating the space to begin to create a new story, a new sense or, about who we are and what our place is in this world. Absolutely. And I know you briefly mentioned it earlier on the podcast, but in the book as well, I know you talked a lot about the physical symptoms and psychological symptoms and specifically the gut. And I know that you mentioned particularly with clients that came up a lot. And again, that was another part of your book that spoke to me because I've always had those issues. And frankly, like most of the people I know have those issues like, and you know, even earlier when I was mentioning going to the psychiatrist and different antidepressants, it's when I've had to, when I went through that process of like shifting SSRIs, I remember that being explained to me about, oh, well, it, these medications don't sit well in the gut for like a lot of people. And that was kind of the first time that I had a connection with like, oh, this, this is so interesting that <laughs> depression medicine, you know, can impact your gut. And so I would love for you to kind of expand on the link between the brain and the gut. And I know in the book, I mean, you, everyone should absolutely read it. There's so much information on there. I think the one thing that really, I wrote it down when I was reading it was you had written, there was 500 million neurons in our gut that talk you know, directly to the brain. And so I would love for you to expand on that because I'm sure there's so many people out there that are just like, what are they talking about? What is this connection? <laughs> I super appreciate you asking um, because I do think that a lot of us know little about um, how important and how pivotal our gut or our digestive region, if you will, organs are for our mental wellness. Um, I know I, I absolutely didn't. And again, I know it's not something that's, that's talked about in the field, though. Our gut plays an incredibly important role. You also shared in your own story, I think, a, a point of confusion for so many of us. Most of yeah. us humans are walking around with the symptomology that comes from <laughs> gut issues, right? We either have digestive yeah. issues where we're constipated or we're in the opposite direction, suffering IBS symptoms that can be completely debilitating for some of us. Right? Yeah. Cognitively, we some of us have brain fog, kind of that, that slowness, that dullness, that memory issues. 
Yet when we speak to people around us, especially as we're aging, we get pretty similar reports. Everyone has these issues. No one <laughs> sleeps well. We're all stressed. No one can poop, right? The list goes on. So right. a lot of us are left feeling like, well, nothing's unique about me. I know I right. saw the same symptoms in my family, right? Complicating it further. Well, this must be genetics. We all have digestive issues. Again, right. this is just what our DNA gifted us. So the reason why we talk about the gut and why I specifically brought up those symptoms a lot of the times those are symptoms of dysregulation in our body um, being caused by our lifestyle choices. Some of us, the environments we're living in with the pollutants, the toxins, the sound, the food we're putting in and all of that comes along with that. Right. Our guts are important because our gut and communicates with our brain. That body that I keep talking about that we're all housed in, we have <laughs> organs and there's messages that are being sent from the brain, which is an organ, to down throughout our body. Our brain is the most powerful organ. It's sending messages throughout our system and our body is sending messages back up. And we have a very main um, nerve, it's called the vagus nerve, and it connects from our brain stem to all of our major organs, most of which are housed in our digestive area. Now, the reason why the gut is important, not only because it communicates, sends messages up to our brain, we now know that those neurotransmitters, I too was on SSRIs. And for a very long time, we believe that SSRIs function in the brain. They helped increase certain neurotransmitters right. that those of us who needed them were deficient in, which is why we had the symptoms we do. So <laughs> working with these SSRIs, my brain will now release more of this neurotransmitter. It's great in theory. However, we know that it is only theory because we now know that our gut is actually the house of most of those neurotransmitters that are being produced in our gut and traveling up to our brain. So now, again, we have our gut being important because a, it's where the nutrients in our food, right, are right. utilized, are, trans, are absorbed into the organs of our body so that we can continue to feed our brain. We now know that it's sending actual chemical messengers up to our brain. And we also know that everything that I was describing earlier, the toxins, the food that we're eating, a lot of times what we're ingesting is actually causing damage to our gut. And this is where things get complicated and cause a lot of the symptoms that we're experiencing. Because when, gut, when our gut is damaged, our body, our immune system in particular, gets on high alert, right? It starts to sense that there's toxins, there's things that are leaking essentially from our, our stomach out into our, our system. And then our immune system starts to get antied up and starts to go online. So before we know it, we have a cascade of hormones, of inflammation, of immune system responses, all of which are likely contributing to the symptoms that we're calling anxiety or that we're calling depression or that we're calling you know erratic moods from high to low bipolar right? we're, we're it's being caused by a deeper imbalance a lot for a lot of us in our bodies so our gut and paying attention to what's happening what is the food that we're eating how is it making us feel is it causing damage that might downstream be translating into our symptoms. So of course, I talk a lot more about um, the gut. There's a lot of information out there, more scientific for those who are interested in the exact um, importance of probiotics also in our gut, the bacteria that does translate to our mood. Um, there's a lot of important stuff happening in our guts, put it that way. And the reason yeah. why a lot of us have symptoms of digestion issues that do co-occur with anxiety and with depression is because right that dysregulation is originating in the gut so the symptoms of the body right. that constriction that ibs like symptoms are the physical symptoms right of that dysregulation and for a right. lot of us the emotions the anxiety the depressions the cyclic cyclical moods even are the emotional symptoms for some of us of that dysregulation that lives in our bodies that's such a i mean i think it's a profound way to define it and to I'm sure that there's going to be so many people listening right now that are going to immediately just start <laughs> trying to learn more information about the gut and I think it's such a good thing to highlight and bring awareness to as you mentioned the book has so much information on it and I find it as I've said it's so educational and so good I encourage everyone to definitely get that I when I was reading it and as we've been talking here I'm curious what your take is on the DSM and diagnosis and labels you know associated with that so and I mean I'm really not look there's no right or wrong answer in my opinion I'm just curious like how you think it kind of all falls 
falls out like what do you do you think that there's any value in the dsm yeah so i think value right like you're saying there's no right or wrong answer value yeah. is assigned by each of us as individuals um i've met right. many a people many a person who in meeting their diagnostic label right so i can even share what mm. mine have been generalized anxiety disorder ocd yeah. panic disorder right so some of us meeting that having the thing that this is right. that point of explanation maybe even provides us a point of connection. Other people who identify with yeah. those labels, for some of us, that's incredibly relieving, right? That's the yeah. narrative that helps us feel better, um, less alone. And there's a million different ways that that label for some of us can gain benefit. Um, so if, right. if you're that person out there and has felt that relief, you know, hearing the diagnosis, maybe being connected with the pool of supportive people who can get it, amazing. There yeah. are others that I've met and come in contact with that labeling yeah. the self right in this very diagnostic way can feel limiting, right? Can feel like right. now I've been put in a box and I identify fully with I'm an anxious human. And for some mm, of us, yeah. right, that feels constricting. It feels like I can't see now a definition of myself outside of my system. Right. So I like to make space in my whole holistic mm, approach yeah. really for the individualization. Like I was talking about, I don't think one size fits all models work. We're all unique. Yeah. Part of healing, I believe, is to create the safety to express the uniqueness of the self. So in right. answering this, I do wanna always give the flexibility to be who you are if you are the person who feels that value, that resonance, that point of connectivity, that relief over the diagnosis, amazing. Um, and also know that maybe you are the person who didn't feel it of value and who felt it maybe too constricting or restricting and giving yourself the grace and the compassion regardless of where you fall and not looking, as many of us do, to what someone else thinks. Well, Dr. Nicole said that for her, it didn't resonate or it did. Right, so that yeah. it should resonate or shouldn't for me now. Really giving us each the grace to feel our way into what works and resonates for us. What is our truth? I love that. And like I said, I find it most incredible that you got a PhD and you still allow for that flexibility. Because my experience, like I said, did not get a PhD, but I got a Juris Doctor. And lawyers are... Yeah. Like they might be a lot worse than psychologists, <laughs> but basically everyone that I know that they're just not flexible when it comes to like thinking outside of their degree. And I, I am not one of those people. I'm completely like on the opposite end of that spectrum. But I think it's so important to recognize when people, I, I don't know, I'm sure this will be like lost on so many people, but I'm just always amazed by anyone that has gone to any professional schooling like that is able to say, okay, I got value in that education and I learned a lot, but I also don't necessarily 100% agree with it because it's really hard to do that. <laughs> it is really challenging. It is really, really challenging. And it is, I think the, the, the pathway, you know, is through personal empowerment, is through developing the confidence mm, yeah. that you do, as we all do, have that internal inner knowing of what's best for yes. each of us. Some of us just don't trust it or haven't been in communication with it. So peeling back the onion to sit in empowerment that you do confidently know what is best for you. You did. You do know what tools resonate. You do know what humans are safe. Um, some of us get confused, yes. right? We have all of these systems that have gone haywire, all of this dysregulation that's telling us sometimes the complete opposite. Though no, and I think this is my one of my hopes as one of my biggest takeaway messages with all of this work is knowing that that place does live within each of you. Um, again, some of us have to, many yeah. of us have to pull back that onion and recultivate trust in that space, mm. um, that's where that flexibility comes from, right? Me having worked and reconnected yeah. with myself that I feel confidently that even if I have a colleague who's yelling at me how wrong I am for all of the <laughs> reasons, right? That the field tells me I'm wrong, that I don't have to sway because I'm in my body. I know what feels yeah. right for me, um, even if that doesn't feel right for the colleague who's yelling in my face. And Absolutely. I can make space for both. <laughs> Yes. And I had actually written down one of my favorite quote in the whole book has to do with what you just said. And it's when you said, when you don't trust yourself, you outsource your worth to others. And when you outsource your worth, you become chronically dependent on other people's perceptions of who you are. And I identified with that so much. And as an overachiever like you, I think 
I would imagine so many overachievers out there can resonate with with that quote. I, I found myself absolutely out. The word outsource was just, I just thought that was beautiful. It is exactly what you do. You know, you don't, and you don't realize how it really does just slowly, you know, tick away mm-hmm. at trusting yourself and trusting so many decisions until you find yourself like asking other people to make the most basic decisions for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I was going to offer that, Cordelia, you're so right. A lot for so many of us, this begins in such early childhood. Mm. We don't even remember the first times that someone, <laughs> you know, told us that our instinct was wrong or not appropriate in this moment for whatever given reason. And we become that person who consistently, I know I was outsourced. I had a very pivotal moment I share often. I was looking to a friend for guidance, as I always had done, about what I should do around some obligation, my favorite word, where everyone was pulling me in all, or I felt everyone (laughs) was pulling me in all these different directions. Um, And the person I was talking to very calmly after they listened to me speak about what everyone else wanted for this particular instance or obligated moment. And the person said to me, what do you want? And Cordelia, I might as well have fallen off my chair. I had no idea. I couldn't even get, I couldn't even fathom. I had no idea what I wanted because I never stopped to ask. And that was the first time amongst many that I began to witness that pattern. I never, I couldn't even tell you what I wanted for dinner. There was a time a decade ago, if you would have said, what do you want for dinner? I wouldn't have known. I would have said, what do you want to my partner? Right, because in that moment, what she wanted was more important than what I wanted, I didn't know. Absolutely. Right, so again, a lot of us flash forward in time when we become an adult who as destabilizing and scary as it might be to be in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and not know who you are or what you want, also know that that's, how would you? You probably are someone who very habitually outsourced, did exactly like I did, never stopped to ask. So now again, the process is a journey. Don't expect you to just know, right? Now it's a journey of self-discovery. I'm still discovering aspects of what I need, um, how I can feel better when I have certain emotional reactions, to something happening in my world, I'm still learning. I still don't yet fully know. Um, and what yeah. I do know to be true is I'm on this journey now forevermore into the future. This is a, a journey of discovery life. Um, so finding that empowerment right. within, I think really does set us up to succeed because no one actually knows what's happening tomorrow as much as we like to try. So that confidence <laughs> that we're talking about, right, is our goal, yeah. is how we feel like we can empower ourselves to continue into the unknown and know that we'll be okay. Absolutely. I honestly I have like goosebumps because I have almost the same experience as you. I I recently actually went through and filed for divorce and just got divorced not too long ago from a pretty toxic and abusive relationship. But I had my epiphany came when I was like, so I'm 30 right now. It came when I was 29 it was the first time that I realized that I never stop and ask myself what I want or what I need in my therapist I had been talking I had not filed for divorce yet but I'd been talking to her about what had been going on and you know what I was struggling with and she asked a very simple question just like you said all she said was well what do you want to do do you want to be married and my response was I haven't talked to him yet and it was so funny that moment was I've talked about it before on my podcast and it's such an epiphany where she was like what do you mean like what would talking to him what does that have to do with what you want and in that moment when I was trying to explain to her Mm -hmm. was when I was like oh you're right it doesn't okay well then no I just I have no idea how to figure out what I want (laughs) so yeah I can absolutely resonate with everything you've said <laughs> and here's the here's to complicate this further and here's where doing the work comes in yeah just because you've had this realization and those of you out there listening who are like yes this yeah is so me i now know i have this pattern don't expect you mm. to stop and ask yourself the next time something exactly for, you know, <laughs> grabs are up for determination you're probably going to be an autopilot and defer or do whatever you do ask him Right. So this is where the work comes in. I need to now be embodied in my conscious self, hear that ping to defer to my partner in that moment and instead stand there through all the discomfort and say, no, partner, I want this. And then stand through the discomfort of having expressed what I want in that moment because it is uncomfortable. This is where it takes that action. This is where listening to this podcast isn't enough for some the insight, the realization Absolutely, part yeah. of the journey for a lot of us. Oh, wow. I do do that all the time. Yeah. Now I can create the space for a new choice. However, 
I have to empower myself to step into that space and to make that new choice because my subconscious right. is going to direct me otherwise. And you will be Cordelia the next time saying, oh, I don't know. Let me check with him. And I'll be Nicole yeah. saying, oh, I don't know. Let me call her. Right? And <laughs> we have to actually exactly. in that moment say, Wait a I don't know. Let me figure out how I can find out now. What do I need now to try to figure out what I need and break that habit of outsourcing? We have to break the habit. Exactly. So for people that are listening out there, I mean, obviously the the first answer to this question is going to be people should buy the book. But what are what should people do? What are some like tangible steps that people can take if they're like, okay, well, I want to do the work. How do I do the work? <laughs> the work begins outside of even buying the book. I mean, I talk about this concept day in and day out a lot of the times on Instagram. Um, so even outside of buying the book, the pathway to a future that's different is actually in the, the third subtitle, right? Create yourself. Um, so yeah. recognize your patterns, heal from your past, create yourself. Right, so the, the, the pathway to creating a future that's different from our past is through a, a daily, consistent, my other favorite word, practice of consciousness. Right, so even outside of buying a book, creating a space to be a conscious being, learning how to tune into your conscious self. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Identifying when your, your attention is elsewhere, when you're not fully present to the moment, when you're lost in thought, worrying about the fight you had this morning, thinking about the upcoming presentation tomorrow. Right? Noticing when you're in that autopilot, when you're just repeating narratives, or are you able to embody a practice of being fully present to the moment, fully in your, a different part of your brain actually, shifting from that subconscious autopilot that's very reactive, that's very emotional, right. to that prefrontal cortex right, where consciousness lives, embodying that again as a practice. Just because I've spoken consciousness now doesn't mean you're like, oh yes, now I'm conscious. You have to fire yeah. up those neurons in that prefrontal cortex. <laughs> I use the phone as a, as a prime tool in service of creating a new habit. Um, as a suggestion, most of us do walk around with technology in our pockets. Most of it has a form of, right. of an alarm, right? A reminder system. So for some of right. us, I've suggested to set an alarm on your phone for random times, maybe two moments, two hours. So 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. in your waking day when you know you'll be awake. You'll probably forget why you even set that right. alarm by the time it buzzes at that hour. <laughs> and when it does, I want you to do a check-in with where was your attention? Are you fully immersed in whatever beautiful thing you're doing in that moment or conversation you're having or experience you're living? Or are you like the larger majority of us, lost in thought, somewhere else, can't identify where I was. Oh, I'm talking to someone. Yeah, I'm saying words, but I didn't really even hear what they said back to me. I was somewhere else. And in that moment, right. We want to rebuild a muscle of attention. We want to gift ourselves with choice, with that conscious choice to remove the focus from wherever else it might be and to bring it in the present moment. And I always suggest two hooks for our attention um, using our breath, right? Refocusing that spotlight from wherever else I was attending to, my endless thinking mind, and refocusing my attention on my breath or on the sensory experience of any given moment. If you're in a room where there I have or actually just went out, I had some incense burning so I could smell something. Perhaps you're eating, right? Can you taste, actually tune into the attention and taste the food that's on your plate? I know a lot of us eat mindlessly. I'm an autopilot. Right. I don't even know. I can't even taste what I'm eating. I'm just shoveling <laughs> my food, right? So small moments of consciousness. Start by setting right. that alarm because, again, by 3 p.m., you're in autopilot, I assure you. So tuning in right. to your conscious self and making that the consistent practice because when we're conscious – now we can gift ourselves with choice. We can begin to see all of those old pathways, all of those old ruts that don't serve us, even feel the feelings that are bubbling up from our subconscious. And over time, we're cultivating space. We can see all of that, all of those older pathways, and begin to make those new choices that we've been talking about. But that only comes with that foundation of consciousness. So if there's one takeaway, and again, you don't even have to buy the book to do this work. Yeah, right. right. Come visit the Instagram page. Come practice being a conscious being and within that conscious state choice is possible and choice allows us to create a new future I love that that's such an amazing takeaway and I'm also putting a link in the show notes for the book and I'm putting a link in the show notes for the future self journaling that you have on your website will you tell us like just what that is and it's free for anybody who's yes. listening um, so that's, I thought it was awesome. And I, I would just love for you to kind of briefly describe it. I would. And this is actually a great time for you to have asked about that, Cordelia, because my future self journal prompts that I actually developed 
when I began my own healing journey um, was for me my my first foundational tool around creating consciousness for me I was not someone who journaled in as my daily practice I never journaled throughout my life really ever um, and I yeah. understood how powerful the subconscious was meaning I knew that when my eyes opened at whatever time my eyes opened any given morning I knew for me it was a slippery slope right back into my the unconscious autopilot that takes me through my general day and by that point right. I knew the habits and patterns that lived in there um, and I was becoming to the awareness that they didn't serve me. So I wanted to start to do new things. I began to heal right. my journey. So for me, I created a, a daily practice of journaling. It was very short. I came up with short templates where the major intention is to set an intention for your day. A, as I call it, a small daily promise that I will practice then keeping throughout my day based on that one new choice that's gonna get me one step closer to that future that's different. The practice of journaling has a couple benefits. For me, it was, I began my practice in the morning. You don't have to do it in the morning. It can be anywhere in your day. The practice though of journaling and setting an intention to do something different is an, an action of calling it to conscious mind. In that moment, I'm not in my autopilot anymore. I'm actually having an active reminder of that new thing I wanna right. do, helping increase the likelihood that I do that new thing and that I don't just slip right back right into my autopilot. Another benefit, I'm harnessing the role of neuroplasticity and the reality that our brain does not know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. And when I write the journal prompts, as I suggest we all do, we write in the present tense as if I've already kept that promise. Right? So what that could look like is I'm a conscious being, right? I am connected to my right. breath. One of those hooks I talked about earlier. I check in with myself throughout the day and I'm tuned into my breathing body or whatever it might be. In that moment, I wrote in the present tense I'm rehearsing it in my mind as if I've already done it in the world. So I'm giving myself some mental rehearsal, some pattern repetition. I'm already firing some new neurons that if I fire those enough, they're gonna start to rewire into a new circuit that then will begin to take the place of that older habit. We actually wanna create a new habit and we can begin to anytime we think in the present tense as if some imagined future is already happening. And for me, I began to do that in the form of journaling, writing it down in page as if it's already been practiced. Set me up again to acknowledge that it's not a magic journal. I don't close it and the magic comes out and I'm poof that person. That was right. just a tool that helped me keep those promises then throughout my day. So that meant closing my journal, making sure that alarm was set on my phone, just continue with this example. And then later in my day at 3 p.m., I remembered, oh, right, I promised myself I was gonna do that this morning, so I'm gonna do it now, and I kept right. that promise. So for me, journaling, I still use journaling. I was journaling this morning. I'm you know, into different yeah. habits that I've now created. But for me, journaling is and has been the consistent practice that allows me, again, to consciously continue to create new habits that'll better serve me into the future. So anyone who wants them, um, I came up with journal prompts that you can use quite universally for whatever habit you're out there, whatever small daily promise you're intending to keep for yourself. Um, and then you can get those by signing up for my email list on my website and you can link that up. It's the holisticpsychologist.com. Perfect. I think that's amazing. And on a final note to shift, I guess, to more relaxing times. I know you said it's been a really hectic time and I would love just to close out the episode with you telling us when you're able to, you know, give yourself more space, what helps you relax and what helps you especially for other overachievers and people <laughs> that are always on the go like what's some stuff that you just like to do to to, to kind of feel at peace mm -hmm. and to not feel like you're thinking about the next yeah. thing you need to do <laughs> yeah. so as you know kind of pretty historically as a, a, a born and bred overachiever in so many ways um nature for me was always oh, a place yeah. that I felt a little more grounded, a little more settled. So living yeah. with racing thoughts for as long as I can remember, when I was out in, on a hike or seeing something very beautiful in nature, it was always a moment where I was a bit more present. Um, that's right. to this day true. Obviously I've been able to ground myself and find many more peaceful moments outside of nature, though nature has always been, and I share that, um, because I think a lot of us who have racing thoughts have one place where it's a little easier for some of us i know for me too outside of nature music um, putting my headphones Ooh, yeah. on could be one of those places where i was lost in the experience of just listening to the music 
Um, so again, yeah. suggesting each of you out there to explore, there might be one of those places um, where you are a bit more peaceful or where you are a bit more conscious naturally. So for me, that's always been nature. Again, it wasn't, I didn't go into nature and become Buddha Zen and my racing thoughts went <laughs> away completely, absolutely not. Um, though it was the place that I found a bit more grounding and that remains. So now I make very intentional efforts to be in nature as much as I can. Um, and like I said, I've expanded the areas where I can find and reconnect with peace regardless of where I'm at. Um, though nature for me is always that immediately grounding place to be. Absolutely. That anything in fresh air always feels so good. For me, it's definitely fresh air and with my dogs. <laughs> so I appreciate your time so much. Thank you for being on the podcast today. It's been an honor and a pleasure just getting to talk with you and talk with you about your book. Of course. Thank you so, so much, Cordelia, for having me. Thank you out there for listening. Um, I appreciate everything you're doing out in the world and all the conversations you're having. I believe this is how change happens. So I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you.